from Friday night football to the county fair, from picnics in the park to hometown parades, from big cities to small towns, we are proud to serve our communities. Last year, we volunteered 19,000 hours and donated $5 million to local charities. Because lending a hand to a neighbor and investing in the people and places around us is the right thing to do. We are Park National Bank, and we are proud to serve you. Member FDIC. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. One in five adults in the U.S. struggles with a mental illness like depression, bipolar disorder, or PTSD. And with the NIH identifying addiction as a mental illness, the national opioid crisis has only increased the burden on mental health providers. Synthetic opioids like fentanyl have claimed the lives of more than 67,000 people, more than the number of U.S. military personnel killed during the Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan wars combined. In this segment, a panel of Washington Post investigative reporters detail the findings of their series, The Fentanyl Failure, examining America's deadly opioid crisis and the U.S. government's failure to take adequate measures to curb the epidemic. Let's listen. Oh, hey. Hey everyone, thanks for coming. Um, it's hard to take the stage after Glenn Close, but we're gonna do our best. Um, I'm Katie Zesma, I'm a national reporter here at The Post. And my colleagues and I are here to talk about reporting on fentanyl, which is now the leading driver of drug overdose, overdose deaths nationwide. We've been looking at this topic for quite some time and there's a lot more to come. So this morning we're gonna talk about why we decided to go down this line of reporting and what we found so far as part of our series, which is called the fentanyl failure. Um, we'll also talk about how stigma, how, how like the panel before us discussed, that stigma is a huge issue when it comes to talking about the opioid crisis. So I'm here with my colleagues, um, investigative reporter Scott Heim, investigative reporter Sari Horwitz, investigative reporter Stephen Rich. So we're gonna start with you, Scott. Um, we're wondering just pretty, uh, basic but complex question, how did the opioid epidemic begin? And we actually have a graphic that we're gonna show about the waves of the epidemic um, and how it has um, you know, evolved over the past few decades. Thanks, Katie. Good morning, everybody, and, and thanks for coming uh, to the Citadel of American Journalism. Um, <laughs> um, this graphic is quite stunning uh, and, and really kind of tells the story. Um, uh, it, this, this epidemic uh, really began mm, about 20 years ago, a little bit more than 20 years ago, when a company named Purdue Pharma uh, created a drug called OxyContin. I'm sure all of you have heard of this drug, and, and this company has been in the news lately. Um, but this drug was uh, incredibly addictive, although it was marketed heavily toward doctors and the public as being less addictive than other drugs that were on the market. Um, it was overprescribed. It was prescribed in very high amounts. Uh, lots of doctors were prescribing this all around the country for things they probably shouldn't have been prescribing it for. And very quickly, people became addicted to this drug. Um, Purdue Pharma's profits started going up. Other drug manufacturers saw the spikes in profits. They began producing uh, generic versions of OxyContin, oxycodone, hydrocodone, Vicodin. Uh, these drugs started to just pour into communities across the country. Uh, corrupt doctors were writing prescriptions. Pill mills started opening up all across the country, many of them in Florida. Um, uh, internet pharmacies started popping up, so if you had an internet connection, you could get drugs delivered to your house. Uh, it, was, it was starting to get out of control. Um, the drug companies were manufacturing more and more 
uh, opioids, uh, drug distribution companies were, were sending hundreds of millions of tablets downstream into communities with very few questions asked. Pharmacies were filling prescriptions without doing their due diligence and asking the right questions about the people who are coming in to fill these prescriptions. Uh, and then finally, the DEA in the mid-2000s, around 2005, 2006, started cracking down. Uh, they shut down the internet pharmacies, they shut down the pill mills, and they started going after the companies. They started going after the manufacturers, they started going after the distributors, they started going after the big chain pharmacies. Uh, they were all fined uh, for not doing their due diligence, for failing to report suspicious orders of drugs that were flowing downstream and hundreds of millions of these pills were winding up in the streets in places like Florida and Pennsylvania and Ohio and West Virginia, New Hampshire, Rhode Island. Uh, so there was a, a, basically a, an entire country had become addicted to these drugs. But suddenly with the DEA's crackdown, these drugs were harder and harder to get. Uh, doctors were being uh, a lot more careful about prescriptions, the internet pharmacies were gone, the pill mills were being shut down, and the most commonly prescribed pill um, uh, was the 30 milligram tablet of either oxycontin, hydrocodone, or oxycodone. So that's six times the strength of a pill that maybe your dentist will give you for minor oral surgery. And, and a lot of these doctors were prescribing uh, people to take this pill two or three times a day. So 60 to 90 milligrams of this drug, when, when many of us have probably had this pill prescribed to us, it's just five milligrams. So that pill suddenly, it used to cost a couple of bucks on the street, now is costing $30, a dollar a milligram, and a lot of people couldn't afford it. And the Mexican drug cartels saw an opening. Um, they're very clever, very smart. They started sending heroin into these very same communities. And so people who, were spending $30 on an oxycodone pill, we're now spending $30 on a bag of heroin. And for that same price, they could get three times as many highs out of that bag of heroin. The highs were higher, they were more intense. Um, and that began the second wave of this epidemic. And you'll see on this graphic how the prescription uh, overdose rates started to flatten out and the heroin rates start to pop up. And then uh, in 2013 or so, the third wave of this epidemic began. And that's the deadliest epidemic of all. And that epidemic so far, between 2013 and 2017, has claimed more than 67,000 lives, just fentanyl alone. And, and that's more than the, the number of US personnel who uh, died in the Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan wars combined. I mean, just think about that. 67,000 people to one drug alone in a very short period of time. And, and there doesn't seem to be any ends in sight. And now we're at fentanyl. You know, Siri, how did the idea for the project originate? And what did, what did you find in the first story? Well, last year, we all saw these staggering numbers that Scott just told you about. And we were wondering, how did this happen? How did we get here? Where did it start? And so we began researching and interviewing people and digging and talking to the DEA and other law enforcement agencies and health policy professionals. And we determined that this began, this latest fentanyl epidemic, the third wave, as Scott said, began in 2013 in Rhode Island. What happened in Rhode Island was there was a cluster of overdose deaths. Um, they thought opioid overdose deaths. 
And when the toxicology reports came back, it was clear that these were all from fentanyl. And public health professionals were really surprised and alarmed because they knew about fentanyl as being a drug that was used in the hospital for cancer patients, for surgery, for severe pain, but they hadn't seen it on the streets. So Rhode Island officials went to the Centers for Disease Control, CDC, and reported this. The CDC then put out an alert. Then what happened is in 2014, it began to spread through New England at first, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and then Pennsylvania, and then Florida, Ohio, West Virginia, and the CDC put out another alert. And the Drug Enforcement Administration put out an alert in 2014, 2015. So the alarm bells are ringing. But in Washington, this is not really on the radar of top officials. There's not a sense of urgency uh, at the highest levels of government, is what we found. And part of the problem, um, we were told by many health professionals and people inside and outside the Obama administration, is that fentanyl in those early years was seen as an add-on. Um, an appendage, if you will, to the two waves Scott spoke about, the prescription pill crisis and the heroin crisis. It wasn't seen as a unique problem that needed its own unique different strategy, but it was a unique problem. It was coming into this country a different way. It was coming from China. People were ordering fentanyl in small amounts over the internet. It was coming through the postal service, so coming in a different way and difficult to detect through the mail, it was a more powerful drug. Um, Scott said 50 times more powerful than heroin. And so people who were taking this drug, first of all, it's, it's just like a four, the equivalent of four grains of salt of fentanyl can kill a person pretty much instantly. And it was being blended into heroin and now cocaine and meth and other things, but originally being blended into heroin and many drug users didn't even know they were taking fentanyl. And the other huge problem is it was being put into counterfeit drugs. So not only affecting addicts on the street, people struggling with addiction, with heroin addiction, but for example, college kids may go to a party where there's pills being passed around, pills that have been gotten on the street, and they could have fentanyl in them, and there have been fatal overdoses that way. So everything about this particular synthetic opioid made in laboratories in China was different. And what we found in our first story in this series is that there was really a failure of government at many levels. The U.S. Postal Service wasn't prepared. They did not uh, have, they didn't require electronic monitoring of all the packages from China, for example, during those early years. Customs and Border Protection was not prepared. They didn't have dogs that could detect fentanyl. They didn't have the right kind of equipment. They didn't have enough officers. Congress was not appropriating significant funding to the fentanyl issue, the opioid issue in general, but also fentanyl. Uh, the CDC, the data coming from the CDC that would show across the country the number of deaths, uh, so coming from coroners, was lagging a year behind. So a lot of coroners weren't even testing for it. So. Basically, it wasn't being treated as the epidemic that it was. And you know, Stephen, the data is showing that this is actually getting worse. It's not. It's not abating. You know, how many people are dying from fentanyl, and who and where are they? And before you answer, we're actually going to have another graphic for you guys to to check out um, from our talented colleagues in the graphics department. Uh, so we know that 
the fentanyl deaths increased very rapidly in the places that they increased. One of the uh, most terrifying aspects of the epidemic is right now about 90% of deaths are concentrated among 10% of the population. So right, we don't, we're not seeing fentanyl in all areas of the country. It's largely in the, the Northeast, the Midwest, um, and, and almost nowhere else. And so that, this is killing, in 2017, it killed nearly 30,000 people in just that area of the country. Um, and if it realistically, if it starts to spread beyond that, there's no telling what the actual ceiling for deaths could look like in this country. Um, one of the things that we've seen in sort of coverage of the opioid crisis in general is that uh, there's a concentration on it, it being in rural areas, uh, the victims being largely white. Um, but the truth of this is that the, these deaths cross every demographic um, the, you know, we're seeing in cities like Philadelphia and cities like DC, fentanyl deaths are going through the roof. Um, and, and so, uh, these, this is not just a problem for a small, small subset of, of our communities. It is, it's, it's everyone. It, it can, it can affect everyone. And what we, what we know sort of about how this is spreading is that the fent where, where fentanyl used to be a cause of death along with other drugs, we're starting to see it more often as a cause of death by itself, um, which means that people are taking uh, fentanyl by itself. That's the only drug that they're taking. They're not mixing it with things. They're not doing anything else. They just want fentanyl, and that's what they're getting. And uh, what we really don't know is what the upper bounds of this could look like. Um, some of these communities are, are devastated by this problem. We really, unless things start to turn around, most of these places are not actively getting better. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, Scott, the previous panel spoke about the nexus between mental health and opioid addiction. How has the stigma around addiction affected the response to the fentanyl epidemic and the opioid epidemic? I mean, it's huge. It's, the stigma is killing people um, in, in the same way that it's killing people with mental health issues the same way that it, it killed people who, who had AIDS and have AIDS today, although that stigma has slowly uh, subsided. But you know, Katie and I um, traveled uh, for uh, this project to Staten Island um, uh, earlier, I guess late last year. Late last year, yeah. And uh, we met with a guy named Luke Nasta, who runs the largest uh, rehab facility on Staten Island, which has been devastated by heroin and fentanyl. Uh, and Luke uh, was a heroin addict in the 1970s in New York City. So he was a hardcore uh, guy on the streets, uh, shooting up heroin with a lot of other people, sharing needles. Uh, and when the 80s hit, a lot of his friends uh, who had survived heroin started dying of AIDS um, because of, uh, of all the needles that were being shared. And so Luke uh, said to us that this is very reminiscent uh, of the AIDS epidemic, this epidemic, because of the stigma that is attached to the mental health issues that underlie addiction, and I think it, almost everybody who is addicted to drugs has a, a mental health issue that underlies that. Uh, and then the addiction itself is something that a lot of people don't want to talk about. Uh, families don't talk about it. Um, you'll see obituaries where it's like died suddenly. Um, and that's starting to turn, but it's not turning fast enough. Uh, it turned. Uh, it didn't turn fast enough with the AIDS epidemic either. And you know, Luke reminded us that you know it, it took the death of a, a, a teenage heterosexual boy named Ryan White 
to change people's perception of the AIDS epidemic. Before that, uh, the AIDS epidemic was seen as a gay disease. There were uh, big you know, televangelist preachers who were saying that it was God's revenge for people practicing homosexuality, uh, that this was a lifestyle choice and they had it coming. Uh, and then Ryan White had a blood, blood transfusion um, and uh, the, the parents at his high school didn't want their kids coming into the school because they thought just being in his presence that they would somehow contract AIDS, which was completely ridiculous. But that was a pivot point. And then a lot of other people started to, to, uh, to, to uh, organize. There was a group called ACT UP, some of you may remember. There was the AIDS quilt. There was a rising up of people saying, enough, the stigma is killing people. We need to talk about this. The government needs to treat this as an epidemic. And as Luke says, you know, this is an epidemic just like the AIDS epidemic. In fact, this epidemic is killing more people than AIDS right now, and it should be treated like an epidemic. And how do you think stigma may have contributed to the lack of government response that we've seen? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a big thing because it's, you know, it, it, people don't want to be seen as, uh, and a lot of politicians have said this to us, the people who have been on the front lines of this have said they had a really hard time getting their colleagues on Capitol Hill to sponsor legislation or to put money aside because, well, it's just a bunch of drug addicts, you know, this is their choice. They decided to, to, uh, to use and they decided to take pills, they decided to take heroin and so whatever they've got coming to them, they've got coming to them and this is not, uh, this is not uh, you know, our problem but it, but it clearly is our problem. Yeah. You know, as Scott said, we've been traveling the country looking at this issue as well. So Siri, what does the, the fentanyl epidemic look like on the ground in communities that are being decimated by it? Well, we've all tried to get out of the bubble of Washington and have been talking to people on the phone and then we've traveled to hard hit areas. We've talked to people, all of us have in Ohio, uh, West Virginia, New Hampshire, um, and just trying to understand what's happening on the ground despite what's being said in the halls of Congress or the White House, what's the real story? And we have talked to people, men and women, struggling with addiction, struggling mightily with addiction. One girl recently said to us, you know, there's a really fine line, because she kept uh, overdosing and continuing to take drugs. And we said, you know, why do you keep doing this? And she said, there's a fine line between euphoria and death. We've spoken to the families um, and to the friends of people struggling. In these communities we've gone to, everyone's touched by it. Everybody knows someone or has someone in their family who's dealing with addiction, and it devastates the communities. Um, it devastates the school system, the foster care system, the police departments, the fire departments. Scott and I traveled last year to New Hampshire, and uh, New Hampshire um, in Narcon, Narcan, which can overdo uh, reverse an overdose, is standard issue in some school systems for the teachers to have. Um, we, in Manchester, people are overdosing on the sidewalks, the public parks. People are uh, found slumped over their cars, um, overdosing um, in, in traffic, slumped over their cars. The fire department, firefighters and paramedics nearly every day are going to fentanyl overdoses. There is a fire station in Manchester that has a has started a really successful program called Safe Stations, where 
addicts can come, people struggling with addiction can come and feel like it's kind of a refuge. There's not going to be a judgment. They're not going to get arrested. And the firefighters will try to find them uh, some kind of treatment in the community. And they've helped thousands of, of people this way. We've also traveled to um, small rural areas where the jails are virtually detox centers. People are arrested who are using drugs. There's really no treatment available in these areas or very little treatment. You know, there's waiting lists with 200 people on them. Um, and so people are withdrawing in the prisons. They're just sitting there withdrawing from fentanyl. And as all of you know who work in this field, if someone asks for treatment, you need to really get it to them right away. They can't wait for weeks or months because it may be too later. They may not want, want treatment then. So that's a very important issue. And drug treatment is uh, a huge issue in these communities. I guess what's most concerning is that while federal money is now starting to get out to states and localities, the really hard hit ones, what we're hearing is it's not coming fast enough and it's not enough money. Stephen, you get the last question. Um, where do we stand right now with the number of fentanyl overdose deaths, and do the data provide us any roadmap to where we may be going? Yeah, so uh, the truth is the best source of data on fentanyl deaths across the country is the CDC. Um, but the latest data that we have for fentanyl deaths is from 2017. Um, so we know that year close to 29,000 people died. But we don't know what happened last year, and we have no idea what's currently going on this year. Um, but we've been doing a lot of reporting in communities across the country and sort of trying to piece together um, numbers as to what 2018 looked like in these communities. Uh, we know that many of these communities uh, surpassed their 2017 totals nine months into 2018. Um, we, so we know that 2018 in many of these communities that are already devastated by it got worse. Um, and in 2019, it, it's, it's only slated to continue to get worse unless something major changes. Um, and, and so we, we're trying to sort of understand um, how this is going to spread. But the truth is, because data lags so much, uh, it's very difficult to understand where we currently are in many of these places. And because of that, we may start to see resources poured into areas that are the hardest hit, but they were the hardest hit three years ago. And the places that are now going to be the hardest hit, we won't know that for another two years. And so trying to solve a crisis in which you don't actually know where it is at this current moment is very difficult because you can't get the resources to where they need to be until, un until it's way, way, way too late. So uh, thank you all for coming. So I know we've talked about the Obama administration. Um, if you're wondering what the response from the Trump administration has been on fentanyl, I just have two words for you, which is stay tuned. We are working on that and a number of other stories on fentanyl. And I know you're all very excited to read them. So um, if you want to sign up, you can to link right there, wapo.st slash fentanyl failure. It will be in your inbox when it publishes you know, that and other stories. And um, if you have any tips or thoughts for us, please don't hesitate to reach out on email or Twitter or however you want to get in touch with us. Um, thank you all for coming. We really appreciate you being here and have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.
Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.